This is RDQI. Capitalism. Whether humanity's crowning achievement or the root of all evil, there are no shortage of opinions on capitalism. But that's not going to stop two guys with a microphone from giving you just one more. But at the very least, we're going to take a slightly different approach, and instead of casting it in the light of the eternal struggle between elephant and donkey, we're going to try and discuss just the simple concept, or try and simplify a very, very complicated concept as much as we possibly can. After all, a topic that impacts all of our lives deserves a little bit more critical thinking than you get in your average political conversation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're in the U.S., have a great Thanksgiving weekend. And as always, we would love to hear your feedback. DM us on Instagram or Twitter or send us an email. Farmer Jay here. Hope you will. I'm sure your current lawnmower is just fine. But did you know that you can mow your lawn in half the time with the Wildcat tractor? That's right. Think about what you could be doing in that time. You could be tending to your crops. Maybe feeding your goats. But really, you'll be saving a lot of time. Call your local Wildcat tractor dealer and ask the sales representative about the X350T riding mower. Hey, Dave. We've talked about a couple of things around value. Hey, we started with this question of what is value. Kind of realized that it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So a lot of it's going to be just individual choices about what value is. And then we talked about currency as a kind of a, a tool for us to understand and exchange value um, in a numerically and monetarily backed system. And we kind of figured out that it's a pretty incredibly complex thing, that is money is complex, because fundamentally it's just a belief system, basically, that we share. It's a belief system for us to share ideas of value. And it's very important, obviously, for economic progress. So we got to think then naturally, especially as Americans, we need to consider what capitalism is and what it isn't. And maybe even, maybe even talk about if, where we are right now in human history, at least. So Dave, you probably know more about this from your background, but how would you define capitalism? Well, I love that, uh, that Winston Churchill quote, that capitalism is the worst system we've ever devised besides all of the other ones. That's obviously a paraphrase. I'm sure he said it much more eloquently than that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think he said drunkenly. that, I think he said that about democracy, but yes. Oh, all right. Well, let's edit that one out. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what though? I think it applies to capitalism as well. Absolutely. Um, and it it's interesting how how the concept of value and currency relate because you know ultimately currency is facilitating trade um, value is determining like the the relative um, uh, value of of effort and reward going into the system and capitalism is sort of the the rules that we've set around how we exchange goods and services. Um, if you contrast it against, um, I mean, it's difficult to say opposite, but but close ideological opposite of something like pure communism, mm -hmm. um, where 
you know, goods and services are distributed by some sort of central authority. Capitalism is by definition decentralized, right? It's it's trade between disparate individuals within a system. Right. And I think the key is who owns the method of production. In a pure Marxist communist state, the centralized government owns the methods of production and then redistributes that wealth out, which is mm-hmm. an oversimplification, but that's what's going on. Capitalism says, no, those who own the capital, basically the investments in the business, they should control the production, not some centralized state bureaucrat telling the shoe factory how many and what kind of shoes to make. The shoe manufacturer should decide that, right? That's kind of what capitalism is in a nutshell. Uh, yeah. Um, Over, it's, it's the means of production. Yeah. Right. Well, but it's, it's the means of production, but it's also the, um, the means of acquiring the output of production. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you could have a, like theoretically you could have the means of production in the hands of whoever owns the capital, but then you could have some kind of redistribution of the output, which would be sort of a, um, you know, socialist idea. Um, but, but, you know, if we just talk about like what pure grade a capitalism is, (laughs) is really just, it's, it's hands off. Really. There are no rules. Um, well, let's talk about its history to get to this point. The concept of capitalism as we know it came out of feudalism in Western Europe, whereby in this feudalism time, this is where you had lords and nobles who patronized the king. So a king would basically rule the land, let's say, let's say England for sake of ease. And then you have all these lords, it could be dukes, even all of these nobility who then control large tracts of land from that land, which is basically bestowed on them by the king. They then extract wealth from the land by having serfs, which is uh, glorified slaves in a lot of ways. That's an oversimplification. But they would have serfs work the land. The serfs would give a portion of the land to the noble. The noble would then, in turn, give some of that to the king. It's a system of taxation and power control. Again, that's oversimplified. But out of this, there came major disruptions in the world. Most, I would say one of them was the age of reason. The other one being the Gutenberg revolution, right? Where this power dynamic started to shift and there was a merchant class that had evolved. So kind of like what we know as the middle class now evolved. And out of this weird ecosystem that we call feudalism and sum it down to a word came this idea that actually maybe the person working the land should have the right to the ownership of the output of the land. Now, it took hundreds of years for us to get from feudalism to our understanding of capitalism now, but it was tied to an idea that um, individuals should be able to pursue happiness, at least in the words of the Declaration of Independence. And the way to acquire that wealth is to, um, to basically work well inside of this laissez-faire economy, a hands-free economy where there is no regulatory body telling the farmer what to farm, how to farm, um, who to sell to, how much to sell to. And if we left it as a completely laissez-faire, a completely hands-off approach, that sounds like the origins of capitalism. Of course, 
as soon as you take your hands off the reins or hands off the steering wheel, all sorts of crazy stuff is going to happen. Right. And so that's where capitalism as a pure idea leaves theory and becomes reality. And I think that's important to note is that in theory, capitalism is freehand. Let the market, let the consumers basically determine what the market should produce. But we're not, it's much more involved and complex than that because life is real and we have real issues, not just theoretical ones. You know, I'm embarrassed to say that I never actually knew the history of, of capitalism coming up through through feudalism. But but it makes sense because if you if we if we think back to our very simplistic, you know, first trade example, right? Mm-hmm. Hunter gatherers trading loaves of bread for uh, gallons of beer and, you know, the, the complexities of trying to then use a third, um, currency to basically facilitate faster trade. Capitalism or free market laissez-faire capitalism really mirrors that first trade. You know, it's, it's several people wanting to exchange goods and services and, you know, free marketeers would point to things that we have today, like, um, like regulation, like monetary policy, like redistribution as nonsensical. If you apply it to a very, very simplistic framework of trade, Mm -hmm. right? You know, why, if, if the bread maker works twice as hard as the beer maker, um, why should they get even shares of what they create? The bread maker should, you know, get m- more reward for working harder. Or if the bread maker is making a good that's more valuable, then shouldn't they get more reward for their good because it's there, there's more of a scarcity element to it? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think in general, capitalism leans towards the latter of your two. It's not about the arbitrary merit of the work. It's about the value of the work. Would you agree right. with that? I, I would. And, and that's an interesting point because a lot of times, a, a lot of the arguments that you'll hear for free market capitalism and, and against anything that smacks of redistribution or, um, I mean, taxation, which is a form of redistribution. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I work hard for my money and thus it's, it's mine. And right. why should I, um, but, but that's a good point. It's less about the quality of the work or the quantity of the work. And it's more about the value of the good or the service that you produce. And the fact that those values can range wildly can lead to a pretty unfair system, right? Uh-huh. If we take our <laughs> trade example, if for some reason, uh, I mean, bread and beer are basically the same thing, so probably a bad, a bad example. But let's say pottery and food. Well, food is very easy to produce, but pottery, um, it's let's say the raw materials are very difficult to come by. It's a very, very skilled labor, and so not everybody can do it. And so pottery becomes so much more valuable than food. Um, but if the potter and the uh, farmers basically put in the same amount of work, it would seem ridiculous that the potter 
had so much more in terms of wealth than the farmers, like in this closed knit community, sure. you'd say, well, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like what, you know, but it totally does make sense if you view it from the perspective of the value of the output, right? Because uh, a, a potter is going to create something that ostensibly lasts longer and is a, also a function of storing and keeping food. So obviously we're that's starting to in, introduce some complexity into this, metaphor that's probably a little unnecessary but (laughs) but basically the idea of economy is to say inside this knits in this close-knit system the individual participants all the people in this community will kind of meter out through this kind of bartering haggling exchange of currency let's say to ascertain which is to say to choose what the value of all these individual elements are and so inside this community comes up with its own value system that is communicated through money. Exactly. When you extrapolate that out to the system today, let's point to, you know, a couple examples where all of a sudden the laissez-faire system sort of breaks down. And I think an easy one to point to is, you know, the history of agriculture in the U.S. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) How many billions have we spent this year on (laughs) farmer subsidies? 28? Well, and and here's, yeah, and this is where value becomes like almost nonsensical because if, you know, multiple periods in history left to our own market devices, the value of crops produced come nowhere near to the cost input to produce those crops in the first place, Mm -hmm. which seems to make zero logical sense. Break that down again in layman's terms because I get it, but let's make it super, super simple. Yeah. So, um, a farmer has to, uh, buy seeds, buy, um, equipment, uh, equipment, right. Water the crops, fertilize the crops. Exactly. The labor that goes into it. So they spend, you know, a hundred thousand dollars to plant, uh, a hundred acres of corn and the price that they get for that corn at the end of the year comes out to $70,000. Yeah. And this is the market. I would say this is broadly true for any farmer in the United States. Right, right. This isn't this isn't a situation where, you know, the farmer just did so very inefficiently. Like that's what free market would say. Well, if your costs are higher than your price, then you didn't do the work right. Mm-hmm. But this is across the board. Like somehow we decided as a country that we only value corn at 70,000, but it takes 100,000 to produce it. So the the Basically, the conclusion is, okay, well, then every player gets out of that market, but then there's no food. Right. So the U.S. government has had to come in a number of times and subsidize farmers so that they can actually make a profit on what they're selling. Right. Which I think, you know, to bring this fully American, we got to talk about the Constitution real quick. And it's an Mm. imperative in the Constitution that the preamble says that part of the federal government's job is to care for the general welfare of the people and to preserve their liberty and a bunch of other things, right? Now, what's the general welfare? We could argue that one until the cows come home. Let's, you know, that's not what this podcast is about. But further in Section 8 of Article 1, Congress is given a lot of power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and between the states. It also establishes rules of naturalization, which basically means... Um, Laws that would be subject to bank, bankruptcy law, let's say, would fall under that. 
Um, and then, you know, the ability to produce and mint money, which we've explained how it's very important. Only one entity has that power because you need scarcity for currency to make sense. And then also to provide uh, for counterfeits against this money. And most importantly, maybe to protect intellectual property of the investors. So that's all in the constitution as we hold these things to be the law of the land. So if we're trying to provoke, provide for the general welfare, it's very important your general populace is fed. And if the cost of production um, outpaced the income you can bring in, that would be a, a major breakdown in society and the government would be facing anarchy. So typically we pump in billions of dollars every year to the agriculture industry. And sometimes it's because there was catastrophic flooding, like what happened last year in the Midwest destroyed tons of crops. And sometimes it's also part and parcel because there's a trade war going on where all of a sudden soybeans in the United States aren't being bought by China anymore. We're not going to get into what that trade war is about either. It's not really relevant. So it comes up to this situation where, yeah, the American government basically released, I think it was $28 billion this past year. And next year, I think we're due for another 20 some. And to put that in perspective, that is more than the bailout of the auto companies in 2007, 2008. <laughs> and yet we're not talking yeah. like it's not a it's not it wasn't part of the election cycle it wasn't part of any of our voting decisions and yet it's happening right now we're not going to argue whether it's a good thing or not that's a that's for politicians to sort out but it does kind of indicate like it's not pure capitalism in this country then if we are receiving if the if an entire industry which is to provide food for its own people is receiving subsidies from the government Right. And, and, you know, to your point, I, I think, you know, I've been arguing that we, we need, I mean, we have regulation, right? We don't live in a laissez-faire system. Um, and, you know, I've been kind of arguing that there regulation is needed. Um, but really on the flip side of that regulation, um, unchecked can, can cause a lot of problems. Oh, and there's man. Yeah. just as many examples of too much regulation. And, and the problem with regulation is, you know, again, we talked about how complex, uh, like the study of economics is, how complex currency is. When we try and regulate something, we are, we're coming at the problem from an imperfect body of knowledge. Like we don't understand all the puts and takes in an economic system. And so when we try and get really crafty with our regulations, it tends to lead to very unintended bad consequences. Mm -hmm. um, you know, think about like the price ceiling um, in, you know, in, in oil in the seventies. Um, you know, anybody who was alive then remembers, you know, lining up and sitting in line to, to get, you know, a gallon of gas and they would wait for, four or five hours. And the reason why is that demand was skyrocketing, but we kept the, the price artificially low. You know, typically demand would, would skyrocket. The price would increase to, mm -hmm. you know, to really offset that. Right. Um, so, so I, I think the point is, is that it's not, it's not a black and white issue. Right. And I don't know what the right answer is, but it seems to me that in situations of gray and ambiguity, there are two wrong answers and hmm. it's the extreme on both ends. For <laughs> sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Is that I don't think anyone, if we, if we carried out this thought experiment and maybe we should do this right now, but like, let's say it was a completely laissez-faire system. 
what tends to come out of a laissez-faire system, pure and simple, if the rules of capitalism are applied? And I think this is what we've been, we've talked about this probably since high school, but the concept of end game capitalism. Yep. And I think mm-hmm. this is one extreme we should look at and then maybe flip to the other extreme pretty quick as well. But I think you'll do a better job of explaining end game capitalism than I could. <laughs> so I think the perfect way to think about the, the game of capitalism is by thinking about the game of monopoly. Mm-hmm. Um, because what is the goal of the game of capitalism? It's to acquire all of the capital. right? Um, If you've ever played Monopoly, the game ends when somebody has all of the property and all of the money. Um, So the end of the game, the goal of the game also defeats and destroys the game, right? Because once somebody owns everything, you can't play the game anymore. Mm -hmm. So capitalism works really, really well in the beginning, in the middle phase of the game. And Monopoly, as a game, is really fun at the beginning, you know, because there are <laughs> so a much number of players. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's so much opportunity. There's so much, you know, the, the idea of competition where, um, it, you know, it, and, and I think there's definitely a, a ton of merit in the idea that competition breeds innovation. Absolutely. Um, if you have multiple companies trying to sell you a phone, then there's so much incentive for those companies to make their phones better and better. And now we have things like iPhones and Androids that still compete against each other, mm-hmm. but they just get better and better every year because there's incentive to do so. Right. The problem becomes the game is very fun at the beginning it's kind of fun in the middle. It becomes very fun at the at the end state for the few people who are but but now fewer and fewer people are owning more and more of the wealth. And I mean, I think everybody has been hit over the head with um, you know the idea of wealth um, inequality or wealth disparity, where you know the uh, you know we saw it with the the Wall Street protests, um, mm-hmm. the one percent protests. I forget the the specific one percenters but it was such a loosely structured protest that it didn't ever yeah (laughs) let me let me drop you a stat really quick and this is from a paper i shared with you on uh, institutionalinvestor.com which is that Mm -hmm. today the top 0.1 percent of the population controls as much wealth as the entire bottom 90 percent combined so 90 percent of the people in our country if they pooled all of their wealth together, they have the same wealth as 0.1% of the upper echelons. That's crazy. And mm-hmm. this article goes on to point out that it it's, sounds a lot like the late 1800s in this country when you had a lot of monopolies. And there's, I don't think there was, um, it was an accident that the Sherman Antitrust Act, which I think was 1890, was passed, which basically said the government was saying, no, monopolies are not good for the general welfare of this country. So, we're going to make it the law, because again, Congress has the law is imbued in them by the Constitution that they are able to regulate the economy. Therefore, they passed the Sherman Antitrust Act. It's signed by the president. It was challenged in court. The Supreme Court says, no, this is totally constitutional. Now it's the law of the land. But that's also an anti-pure capitalist act. You know, like AT&T literally had to divest itself from its own company. 
And now we have mm-hmm. a couple of the phone, co- well, whatever a phone company is anymore. But, <laughs> but, and the problem is, is it, it's very unfair for consumers. So let's say, let's say you owned all the railroads in the world and we actually still relied on railroads for everyday life. If I owned every railroad in the world and Dave, you want to take a train from Philadelphia to New York, I could be like, yeah, that's going to be $200. And you could say, no, I'm not going to pay that and be like, great, you can walk then or get a a buggy. I don't care, but you're not riding on my Mm -hmm. train. Now, if I own a train and you own a train and we're competing for Sally and Tim to get on that train, you better believe I'm not going to charge $200 from a trip from Philly to New York, right? Because you would be like, I'll do it for 150, you know, and then I have to say 125, then you say 100. And therefore, our price comes down to actually reflect the cost and how efficient our businesses are at at spreading that or mitigating that cost. So then it's like your business mm-hmm. practice, the health of your business becomes the determining factor of how successful your business can be. Kind of, right? No, that's a perfect explanation. Um, and and what you're, the situation you're describing is the optimal stage at which, at, at which capitalism is, and this is opinion, but to me, you know, the, the best way to organize a system of trade, but you know, the, the, the antitrust act was sort of the first, um, the first instance in the U S of having to reset that game, you know, because again, the game only works in the beginning, in the middle, but it doesn't really work at the end. And so how do you keep playing the game? There has to be some sort of mechanism to reset the game. It's almost like you, need, again, you just need a referee. Basically, with some new rules. Well, not even a referee. You need a, you know, so you're playing Monopoly and you start to lose. And then, you know, it gets to a point where the the writing is on the wall. There's no way you're going to lose. The You know, the person has the other, the person who's winning has too much of the capital, too much of the power. You can't possibly win. Mm. And so to solve that problem, you start the game over and then it's fun again. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But you can't keep keep going. And, you know, the, the Antitrust Act, that, that helps the, that helps reset the game at the very, very, very end. But I think we're in a, a state now that we, you know, I would, I would term late, late game or end game capitalism, where there isn't somebody who's won, but the game has progressed long enough where a very few people own so much wealth that there is no way any of the other players can come back. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a great analogy with professional sports in this too, yeah. because yeah, yeah. Um, I, let's just take, um, let's take tennis for an example. Um, if you watch, professional tennis today, I mean, they are playing a different game than you or I would play tennis or that (laughs) 99% of people would play tennis. You know, it's really interesting um, because you get so used to the way tennis looks, professional tennis looks on TV. Go back and watch um, footage from the Olympics of like the 60s and the 70s. Yeah, there you go. And watch tennis. And you're like, wow, these guys are bad. They're not bad. They're very, very good. But they're playing like the the tennis that anybody would play professional tennis has been engineered where 
you know, the, the competitive advantage comes down to another mile an hour on the serve, you know, the, on mm-hmm. the hundred plus mile an hour serve. Yeah. Uh, it comes down to just, you know, a, a slightly better angle. Um, you know, and the only reason, the only way that we've built these, these tennis superstars like Roger Federer is, is a great tennis player, but he's a great tennis player because he has a machine behind him with a ton of money, making him incrementally better every single day. Yep. There is no way that you or I, or even the best amateur tennis player in the world could ever play and compete at that level. Right. A, because we couldn't afford it, even if we have the natural aptitude for it. If you don't have the ability to pay for this network of people that really supports you and elevates you to this level through, you know, marginal gains on an aggregate level, which is to say getting a 1% boost in a hundred different areas of your life, as opposed to searching out a 5% boost on the speed of your serve, right? So, if you, there's different ways to think about it. And if you can employ those people to think about it for you and then coach you through it, you're on a different planet as far as competition is concerned. I mean, I, me- I remember reading about NFL players who they have line items on their budget well into six figures for masseuses, just for a masseuse, because it's so important to them to maintain their body in optimal fashion at all times. Then since they can, some of them at least, they invest six figures in that because they need to maintain a competitive edge. Mm-hmm. But what this, and I think Warren Buffett puts this a pretty interesting way where, you know, the, the Oracle, as we call him, um, talks about basketball, but it's pretty much the same thing for tennis. He basically says, if you're in the top percentage point of basketball athletes on the planet, you are essentially from a economic standpoint, worthless. There is no value to you. But if you're in the top 10th of a percentile, then all of a sudden you're a multimillionaire who's a celebrity. And it's that fine, it is that razor thin of a difference at these ultimate levels of competition that really separate who has value and who doesn't. And it's the same thing in tennis. I mean, how many, how many grand slams is he, like how many titles between him and Djokovic and Nadal have they won in the past 10 years? I mean, it's like almost all just those three guys. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's because they can maintain that competitive advantage. Now, I'm not going not to diminish their work because it's impressive beyond belief. I'm not saying that, you know, just it's because they're wealthy and the people around them that they're good. That's not true at all. But it does point to how in our current economic system. Think about it. You know, let's let's take the metaphor back to to business, right? We have the three tennis giants who win all of the, um, you know, all of the tournaments, and the same in the in the women's division. You know, Serena Williams. Um, oh boy! Yeah, I, don't don't ask me. I'm terrible at tennis. I, I'm just happy I, I know, knew those three names. <laughs> um, but but they just trade off. They're the three giants, and then you have let's let's talk um, retail. You know, you've got Amazon, you've got Walmart, um, you've got a couple niche big box stores, but you really only have two or three giant retail players mm-hmm. and they just trade off market share um, and they, they fight and they claw back one percentage point, two percentage points here and there. And 
you know, if you and I want to go start a retail shop, we will get shut down, destroyed um, tomorrow because, you know, we are we're sourcing our products and we'll you know, we'll, we'll do the, do the numbers and we'll say, okay, well we can sell toilet paper for $5 a roll and we can make a profit. And Walmart's like, we can sell ours for 30 cents and still make a profit. Or even and, honestly, more brazenly than that. Walmart's like, no, we'll lose money on toilet paper. We don't care because it gets people to our <laughs> yeah. store. Right, right. They they have the capital to be able to do that. They also have the capital to employ whole divisions of people who all they do is look for better and cheaper ways to source their products. Mm -hmm. They find a paper producer that will sell them tons of paper for half a cent less than they currently do. And I mean, that person gets promoted to VP, you know, the next day, because you multiply that over their entire distribution line and it's, it's millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Yep. You and I can't ever hope to compete with that. No. And so we can't. Yeah. And, and coming from me who, you know, I was before the pandemic was working in a distribution model, right? So we were leveraging economies of scale left, right, and center. That was our whole business, right? We could deliver a product and a service to our customers that, our vendors couldn't deliver that same product and service. And it's just by the way that we organized our thinking and because of how big this company is. Um, without saying it, it's one of the top 10 largest employers in the US. None of you on this podcast have probably ever heard of this company, but I guarantee you, you've been served by this company. I I've totally understand how a large corporation, a global corporation has so much leverage that other companies don't. Now there's, there's a flip side to this though, too. And that's nimbleness, agility. I think mm, larger yeah. firms are going to have less agility because you can't, you can't build something that big and have it be that flexible too. So there is, there's, there's opportunity for disruption, but in general, you need like a major, <laughs> you need a major sea change for those types of disruptions to happen. You need the internet to occur. You know, you need something massive. And, and I would argue that in, in an end game of capitalism, the really the opportunity for small business, like you said, is, is disruption or it's finding or creating even a market that doesn't exist or a niche market. Um, but it's only temporary. It's only mm -hmm. temporary until another company comes along and buys that company mm -hmm. or figures out how to do it. You know, agility is less of a problem for big companies than you might think. I think that was a problem in the past, but I mean, many, many, many companies are building agility into like their foundational core principles. Yes. And you'd be surprised how quickly massive organizations can change and adapt. Yeah. Uh, a good example would be Allbirds Shoes. So Allbirds is a, um, you know, startup and New Zealand-based startup that basically developed um, shoes made out of wool. They're vegan. They're sustainable, um, and they they only exist as a an internet company, right? They they you you purchase the shoes online. They deliver. I guess they do have some stores now, um, but it was this very very unique sustainability-oriented product. Um, that really captured the, the market. It became, you know, really blew up in Silicon Valley and, you mm -hmm. know, is now kind of global. Um, 
that's an example of a startup, you know, coming in in a crowded retail clothing apparel market and being successful. Mm -hmm. But Amazon has already created their own version of wool shoes. Um, yep. So many other firms have come in and and you know already tried already started to poach market share from these guys. Mm -hmm. um, and those shoes are expensive. You know, they're a couple hundred bucks, and Amazon's are significantly cheaper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's still some brand recognition with the Allbirds. Like, I don't think that that brand is going away, but you can see t to me, it's very hard to come in to a segment as a startup, as a small company and maintain whatever market share you have. Like if it's profitable enough, the bigger companies will see it and they will throw so much more capital at the problem than you ever could hope to. And I think retail is a good example because I think everyone knows what retail is. We have experiences with shopping. But let's talk about, because I mean, kind of going back to the wealth inequality gap and some of the things that we've said in passing throughout this podcast, which is if you don't understand the, the language, the dialect, if you will, of the finance world, the finance world will take advantage of you, right? I think we would agree on that point. Mm-hmm. So instead of talking about retail, what if you wanted to start a finance firm? What if you wanted to start a bank? How much more difficult is it to start a bank right now? And part of that is because of regulation. Major banks yeah. can employ hundreds of lawyers to parse through regulation, figure out how to find the, the loopholes in the law, and then exploit them because that's what every business does. Because if you don't, you're kind of, <laughs> you're not trying hard enough, you know? You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. if you start a bank, do you have the capital to be able to pay hundreds of lawyers for you to have a competitive advantage through regulation? I'm going to oversimplify and say there's no way you could afford that. Yeah. So regulation in this case actually could stifle competition. Yeah, actually, that there's a good example in the food industry. Um, there's a... Uh, a big chicken producer. Um, you probably know who I'm talking about, but I won't name them. Um, <laughs> so you'll name they, you'll name all birds. Which, by the way, this episode of RDQI is brought to you by all birds. <laughs> <laughs> all birds. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> was that your, I was going to say we or <laughs> I was going to say more, but then I thought better of it. <laughs> Um, let's not try and do an accent on a live podcast. Um, no, I'll name, I'll name all birds because they, I didn't say anything bad about them. I'm going to say something bad about this chicken. Okay. Producer. Gotcha. <laughs> um, so they, they actually, uh, lobbied for a lot of different regulations around the food production industry mm -hmm. because the problem they were seeing is, is these small organic producers were producing a, uh, a much better product, um, in terms of quality, but also in terms of, you know, sustainability and the, in these, these, buzzwords that have become much more important to the consumer. And so what they did is they said, well, hey, 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 hang on. We need to make sure that all of these uh, little small producers are doing things correctly and following certain safety standards. So they lobbied for very prohibitive regulation mm -hmm. around uh, like the, the killing and the packaging of, of chicken. So you have to have, you know, USDA inspected facilities and um, you have to maintain all of this equipment and all of these. So very easy for a big corporation to be able to fund and, you know, fund that regulation. But these smaller producers, and I know this because I've, I've worked with a few of them, they 
just give up. Like they, they cannot possibly put the capital in to maintain that. They don't produce enough to, mm-hmm. to cover that fixed cost. So it effectively put all of these smaller producers out of business. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's just more examples of using the power of having the majority of the capital to, you know, ensure your dominance, your continued dominance. Like, yeah, the game technically is still open to the smaller producers, but there's simply no way they can win. Right. Right. I mean, I think everyone recognizes that you have to, in life, you play the cards that are dealt to you, right? It just is what it is. Problem is, there are plenty of people who experience a life where they get to inform what cards they get because of their power in life. It might be being a CEO of this poultry production company. And you know, yeah, I can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars from my company, at least, to lobby the federal government to enact laws that'll be good for my business. And especially if the motivation for that is because these other businesses are grabbing my market share and I want to mitigate that. I mean, that's almost the definition of nefarious. And I don't, I don't know that it's wrong inherently in the sense of like, we free speech is very powerful in this country and money is equated to free speech. Unfortunately, that's the state of affairs because uh, to me, the argument is that shouldn't be allowed because that's not good for the people of this country. But the counter argument is that yeah, the First Amendment rights say I can do this. It's really hard to contradict someone on that point. Right. But is it good for us? And then that's where it gets philosophical and maybe we should start talking about the other end. Let's say, I mean, we're talking about yep. end game capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Which is all theoretical, but we know that theoretically it would create a bunch of monopolies mainly because we saw that already happen in our history now let's try and pick an opposite i would say socialism is probably the one that people use the most and understand the least um (laughs) yeah right socialism is a catch-all word it's like well do you mean marxist socialism or do you mean social democracy like you know so broadly speaking socialism is an idea where the central government so if we're going to apply it to the u.s the federal government controls all the means of production. Now, how that would be enacted, who knows, okay? But we already have a ton of bodies that perform this. Let's say Social Security is a redistribution of wealth system. Let's say the Food and Drug Administration is basically a gatekeeper for competition. You could say the same thing about the American Medical Association, as Milton Friedman, who was the economic advisor to Reagan and Margaret Thatcher pointed out. That the AMA is not, it's a regulatory body. Let's call it what it is. And that is a step into socialism. Um, mm-hmm. Now, most people don't think of the American Medical Association as a socialist practice because they're like, oh, it's good. We need doctors to validate other doctors' right to practice. That is all well and good, but the AMA also strictly controls what it means to become a doctor, therefore controlling the supply of doctors. Yep. So we're already in a quasi-socialist state that functions out of a federal republic through a representative democracy, which is a mouthful of jargon terms. Let me rephrase that. (laughs) We are a federal government, which means there is a central body that overlooks the 50 states. It is a republic, just like Rome was, kind of. Its democracy is representative. We don't elect the president directly. We elect electors to elect the president. Just like we elect our Congress people to go to Washington to fight for us from our state, 
we're not ourselves walking into Congress and trying to vote on things. So we rep- we elect people to represent us. And then inside of that, we're also part of that regulation is how does our commerce work? And that's where we're kind of quasi-socialist, quasi-capitalist. Because I would agree with you, I think capitalism is the best method of production. But if you leave it unchecked, problems come up quickly. And so now we're struggling with this issue of, well, how do we balance the two off of each other? But we should probably talk more about socialism's endgame. Let's just talk about the USSR. I mean, that's a pretty classic case. Yeah, right. You know, it's it's hard. It's hard when you think about, um, like, try, you know, communist and socialist experiments throughout history because they had, um, you know, a, a number of other issues that go along with it um, that were that were, you know, specific or unique to like that, you know, USSR, um, which I should say was the Soviet Union. USSR was post fall. We should clarify that point. Right, right, right. Um, but you had, you know, uh, the idealism of Lenin, which had issues to begin with that then, you know, sort of morphed into the authoritarianism of Stalin. I mean, Len- Lenin was authoritarian as well, especially towards, you know, middle and end of, of his time in power. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think there is a reason why most socialist experiments have kind of given way to dictatorships and authoritarian, uh, you know, of course. I mean, cause the idea it, is that wealth should be centralized in a governing body, which is right. to say and that you, governing body should have all the power. Yeah. You give, and it's, it's a monopoly. It's exactly the same reason we don't allow economic monopolies when somebody controls all the power, whether it's economic or whether it's political, power corrupts. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, what I think is so brilliant about the idea of capitalism is it, it allows for human nature. It doesn't try and subject human nature. It says, you know what? Humans are kind of inherently corruptible and greedy. Let's play off of that strength rather than assume we can be better. Like it's, you know, it's a lot, we, we want to think that we can be better. Um, I don't think history has ever proved that we, we can be. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, um, but it feels, it feels, no, I know what you mean. Cause it feels like there is some sense of progress, right? But that's also going to be a subjective feeling. And it, maybe it's important to point out the Soviet Union and one of its big problems was its economic organization was a shambles. I mean, trying to have a governing body control all aspects of a vast economy, especially let's consider Russia's geography, it encompasses, what, nine time zones, I think? Maybe ten? Mm-hmm. Trying to organize that from one central location is a surefire way to fail. I mean, I remember reading on, you know, especially during the Reagan era, we like trying to win the cold war by outspending essentially, which is a huge reduction of what was actually going on, but that's kind of the gist <laughs> of it. Yeah. What, what was realized was that is that the Soviet union couldn't produce a reliable toaster. Like it was as simple as that. And I think it's mm-hmm. because it was some brain trust in some area of Moscow and their marble white towers saying, well, here's how we need to create a toaster that fits our entire economy, rather than saying, like, why don't we just figure out what the economy wants from us and then orchestrate it to meet those needs? And I think if you try and 
prescribe human motivations, you're in for a real tough, tough pill. Because you're never going to be able to prescribe people how to live every aspect of their life, which is what an authoritarian regime really seeks to do. And that's why what makes capitalism so much better is, and this is where I think the invisible hand um, concept is so important. So remember from the first episode, the invisible hand is like this idea that a free market will always move to correct any sort of imbalance. And so when you have new demands and new needs arise, if you have one central body trying to understand what's happening in an economic system, which remember, we do not fully grasp at all. It's mm-hmm. like trying to understand the brain. Um, we, you know, and actually this is a perfect example, right? If there's a, if there's a problem in your body, um, imagine if we didn't have any of like the autonomic mechanisms within the body to correct for things, right? Like you get sick, you don't really have to do anything. If you're healthy, your body will fix itself. Imagine if you didn't have that reaction and you had to go to a doctor every time anything happened to you, you got to <laughs> cut, cut your finger, like go to the doctor. Cause it's not going to uh, coagulate and right. um, your platelets aren't going to function. It's going to be a nightmare. Right. Right. So the, the free hand of a, a free market um, or a cap, not free market, but a capitalist society is that these needs will be met by so many other players in the system. Just, you know, something happens all the way on the other side of Russia, a need arises, and then people with the means rise to fulfill that need. If you have one person doing it, it's just going to be so cumbersome and inefficient. They're not going to do it correctly. And so this invisible hand moving to, to help and correct all of these things within a system just makes so much more sense. It's, it's the reason why, you know, Soviet Union couldn't produce uh, one toaster and, you know, you go to a store today and we've got 25 different brands with every possible spec you can imagine. Yeah, I think, man, one of the, my favorite ways to evaluate socialist economies in history is the kind of cars they produce. Because it, yeah, the Skoda. Yeah, the Skoda. Um, <laughs> let's let's use the let's use an example everyone knows the VW Beetle. Right, everyone's aware of that car. It's mm-hmm. VW obviously stands for Volkswagen, which literally means people's car, or essentially. <laughs> it does. Right, and it's it comes in where. Who designed the first Beetle? Under which regime was that developed? Oh, it was the Nationalist Socialist Party who needed a car that was affordable to produce, relatively affordable to buy and maintain, so that the people, the Volks, could have a wagon. I mean, that's, I don't know how much, how much more literal we can get with it. But that was the means of production at the time. Now, obviously, Nazi Germany is much more complex than saying, oh, it's socialist, because it wasn't. It was fascism, and that's a whole different bag. But its economic theory was... masquerading. Right. Its economic theory was heavily tied to socialism. And like a a 1940s Volkswagen Beetle, there's a reason you don't see those being driven around anymore. They they weren't great. Let's put it that way. Or if you look at at Fiat cars in post-World War II Italy... Again, not great cars, you know, very quirky and a lot of weird design failures. Yep. But then, you you know, let's look at, let's say, Great Britain. The wealth of different car makers that were in Great Britain in post-World War II created a lot of innovation and a lot of change. Same thing happened on this side of the pond in America. So, there's a lot of merit and value to it. There's also a lot of 
problems to capitalism. Um, and I think it's important for us to talk about it because if we don't agree on what the problems are, then we're never going to figure out a solution. Just kind of like, I don't think most people realize that the U.S. government has leveraged so many U.S. dollars of our tax dollars to support the agriculture business. I mean, the auto companies made huge headlines when they asked for a bail bailout situation. And I've yet to see any noticeable national conversation about how much money we're subsidizing our farmers with. I'm not saying subsidizing our farmers is wrong, but why is it not a part of our conversation? But like, what are the problems? I mean, would you say that income inequality is, I mean, to me, that's the problem I'm most concerned about. Because it, to me, it indicates, it's like the symptom of the body. If our body is a capitalist system, we're seeing some poor symptoms that are basically saying, yeah, but wealth isn't available to everybody. And in fact, increasingly so, it's available to a fewer and fewer and fewer, or a smaller and smaller and smaller group of people. I mean, and that changes your agency as an individual inside this country that gives you a lot of liberties. But if you're not given all of those liberties because the system is tilted against you, is it is it still working for us? Should we ask for change? And how should we ask for change? I yeah, that's such a that's such a good way to 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 describe the whole problem too. And I just want to touch on that, right? The, you know, the wealth, wealth, the income gap, the wealth inequality, um, can is, is right now is, is sort of, it's, it's been co-opted as a partisan issue, right. um, elements of it. Absolutely. But, but if you think about it within the context of everything we just described, it's such a dumbed down version of the problem itself that they've then kind of co-opted to brand you as one side or the other. Um, but it's really not a partisan issue. It's an unbelievably complicated issue. And we just kind of described how both of these simple solves on both extreme ends of an ideological spectrum don't really work, have massive amounts of problems with them. Um, that being said, you know, it, it certainly is a problem and it's trending in, in a uh, negative way. And I was listening to Warren Buffett's uh, 2020 speech and he said, you know, he made the argument that America is a better country, more successful country than it was a hundred years ago. And the the facts that he brings up. And I think there are elements of that that are true. Um, you know, most people have a phone, <laughs> yeah, a small little computer in their pocket. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the fact remains that yes, while we have more in terms of GDP wealth, more of that wealth. And he omitted this part, more of that wealth is concentrated in fewer hands. Right. Um, which, you know, is, is just numerically trending in the wrong direction, right? We are getting to a state of the game of monopoly where the game's not fun anymore for the people who don't have the, the means. And I love the idea of coming at this, the, you know, the, the concept of capitalism coming at it through the lens of value of us discussing inherently what value is, mm -hmm. because I don't think, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I'll put myself in this camp. Uh, when I say most people, when I, think about capitalism, I, I didn't really think about it in the context of value. You know, like why, why does one person make more money than another person? Well, you know, embedded in all the mechanisms we use to determine that is, is inherent value of 
that person's worth in terms of either what they're producing or who they are, what they're selling. But, you know, it all comes back to this idea of value. I mean, think about other instances in history where the wealth has gotten to a point where, you know, the large majority are, you know, don't really see a way out of their situation, a way to win the game anymore. Um, you know, the, the, effective way to do this is to, you know, think about internally how we reset the game without causing turmoil. But historically, it's been the losers flipping the game board over. Yep. You know, you guys are going to fix this. Fine. Here's how I'm going to end the game. And, you know, when you look at that and, you know, I've heard that sentiment expressed a number of times, but Obviously, that's a that's a terrible thing. If you look at, you know, the French Revolution and what happened after the French Revolution, France was not a fun place to live for no. a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't flip the board and then just set it up and then start playing again. It was a disaster. The pieces were all over the floor, under the couch. Like there was blood know, everywhere. It, it was just <laughs> it was a bad jam, you know. Yeah, like those those things aren't those reset buttons are very painful, um, and it, it makes it would be it would be to me the greatest triumph of what America is if we were able to reset that game without flipping the board.